I had a, um, I had a case one time. And this was a case where, uh, um, and, and what I've done in the lesson is because of confidentiality agreements, I've kind of combined two cases together. So no one can say, oh, you, t- you squealed, you swore you wouldn't, but you did. So, okay, this is two put into one. I had a case one time where uh, a fellow was sent over to put out a, a, a big blazing fire from an oil well. And um, this was actually after the Kuwait uh, mess where Saddam Hussein had lit all of those Kuwaiti oil fires. And he was sent over there to put it out with his uh, oil fire fighting unit here from Houston. When he got over there, the company that had paid for them to come over was supposed to have set up certain safety equipment that would stop uh, uh, any big blowout and also water on site so that if the the fire got away, you're able to control it, but had not yet had a chance to do that. And so my fellow was going to wait until everything was okay and the equipment was there, but the company said, no, time is money. Every minute that this oil well is burning is oil we're losing. And so get in there, even though the safety equipment's not there, and put it out. Uh, in doing so, there was an explosion. My man was trying to run from the fire. He was not able to outrun it, and he was burned alive. It left him with a widow here and a young boy named John, um, who I think Dr. Bob was about nine at the time, nine-year-old son, if I remember correctly. We thought it was a very strong case, and so we brought the lawsuit. <clears throat> we went to a mediation process, and in the mediation process, and and and... and I want to be very careful not to make this a political statement because this is about the lesson. This isn't about politics, okay? I, I would love to talk to you about politics one day, but that's not the time and place here. And the time and place for this is our Lord Jesus. Now, having said that, as my caveat, the particular court where this case had been filed has a particular appellate court above it and another appellate court above that. We go to a mediation process, and I stand up, and I said, look, this is your fault. This is what you did, and this is what you owe my client. Let's get the boy enough money to where he can go to college. Let's get the boy enough money to where his mama can still stay home with him. Let's, let's fix this problem. The response from the other side was, eh, probably was our fault. Eh, probably did cause the damage. But we own the judges. So it doesn't matter whose fault it is, and it doesn't matter what we owe. You can't hang on to a verdict in this area because these judges will always vote for the insurance companies and the businesses as against the individual. Now, the reason this isn't a political statement is I can show you other places where the judges do the exact opposite and always vote against the business interests and against the insurance companies and for the individual. Both of them are wrong. Because that's not what justice is supposed to be. Justice is not supposed to be for sale to whoever can buy their way into the hearts of whoever it is making the decisions. My idea of a judge would not be an idea of a judge who makes a decision based upon whose side he's on or she's on. It ought to be based on what's the law, right? 
Okay. So, with that in mind, we're going to talk about how God is as a judge. Does God make his decisions based on who he likes? Does God make his decisions based upon who's paying him? Does God make his decisions based on what it's going to take for him to be elected as God next year? What, what is in his mind... Is God more favorably disposed if you're a citizen of the United States of America as opposed to one somewhere else in the globe? Where, where, where does God land as a judge? And what are the issues that are important from Paul's perspective as we study Paul? So here's my question for you. Hear ye! Hear ye! The court's in session. The court's in session. Now, here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the judge! What, sorry, what comes to your mind when you think of judge? Do you think of an Olympic judge? Do you think of Flip Wilson? Do you think of um, Judge Judy? Do you think of my favorite, Judge Dredd? I am the law. What comes to your mind when I ask you about a judge? Do you think about someone in black robes? Well, judge is a human term. We have judges. We have them in different places. And so when Paul and the Bible write about God as a judge, it's not that they're calling him Judge Judy. It's not that they're calling him an Olympic judge. But they are doing what's called an anthropomorphism. And that's what we've been covering the last couple of weeks. It's using a human term to describe something that is not human. It's taking the human idea of a judge and applying it to the divine God who is far beyond our human legal institutions. Okay? So, that's what we need to discuss today. So we're going to look at God as judge. For example, Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that God judges the hearts of men. And when Paul says God judges the hearts of men, Paul's using courtroom language. He's using language like you would have, it, it, it's, it's, it's judge God. It's, it's the legal word for judge. Someone asked me, if you're going to do this, why don't you use you? Okay, there. The judge is behind me. That's Carol Higby, a judge in Atlantic City, New Jersey, sitting up on the bench under the American flag. She's actually elevated. Because in American courts, the idea is the judge represents the law, and the law is above everyone in the courtroom. So the judge sits highest. And yet the flag is always still above the judge, because the judge, him or herself, is not above the law. They're under the law. So that's the layout of an American courtroom. Paul is using this word judge as a judicial word, but it's not just courtroom language. Paul's also using language that comes out of the Old Testament, out of the scrolls he studied, what we study as the Old Testament. Paul was, above all else, an Old Testament scholar. He was trained to be an Old Testament rabbi. Paul, is an, Paul zooms in on the Old Testament. So when Paul talks about God as a judge, he's using legal language that helps us understand it from a legal courtroom perspective. But it's not just that God sits as a judge up on high and says, guilty, not guilty, death penalty, eh, probation, parole, 
5 to 10. No, not really. That's the time. Um, That's judicial humor. Um, That's not necessarily what Paul's talking about. So what I want us to do is I want us to, to, on our to-do list this morning, let's get into the Old Testament and understand what the Old Testament means when it talks about God as a judge. And after we do that, then we'll understand more fully what Paul means when Paul talks about God as a judge, and then we'll close with our points for home. So with that as our to-do over the next 35 minutes, let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and go. In the Old Testament, God is talked about as a judge in a number of different ways. We read that God will judge the nation of Israel. And you find that throughout. There are places, entire books of of the minor prophets are written to say, God's coming to judge you as a nation, Israel, because as a nation, you're not living holy and righteous before God. But the Bible doesn't say only that God judges the nation of Israel, His chosen people. The Bible says in addition to judging the nation of Israel, God judges the foreign nations as well. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it'll talk about how, it talks about how God uses Israel to judge the foreign nations. God uses the foreign nations to judge Israel. So God's a judge of Israel, His chosen people. God's a judge of the foreign nations. But God's also a judge of individuals. And, and it's, it's not the kind of thing where God's just the court that's concerned with the big picture. God's concerned with the person. And he's concerned, I better point it myself too, with all of us on an individual basis. And that's what we have in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what kind of judge is God? Is God a um, Judge Judy? Is God a Flip Wilson? Is he an Olympic judge? Is he a judge for hire? Well, to do to really give justice to God, justice to God as judge. Bad. To really give fair play to God as judge, we need to understand the Old Testament words. So today we have an Old Testament word for the day. If you're keeping track, it's Shapat. Want to say Shapat? Shapat. By the way, as I was preparing the PowerPoint, I typoed it wrong. It's really hard to do the letters left to right in word perfect when you're trying to insert Hebrew. So if you're being nitpicky on the footnote, your shapat reads peshat. Sorry. Um, That's not the word, but this is the word, shapat. Mishpot is, is a judgment of God, and that's used a lot, the justice of God. This Hebrew word for judge doesn't just mean a judge, but it also implies a ruler. Someone who's in charge of the people. Someone who rules. Who's, it's not, in, in America, we've divided up and we have three branches of government. We have the executive branch, the, the president, the governor, people in those types of roles. Um, we have uh, uh, the legislative branch. These are the senators. This is why... Uh, Sarah Palin says she's got executive experience that Obama does not have. Um, Because Sarah Palin was in the executive branch as a governor, uh, uh, Obama and uh, McCain don't have the executive. They're in the legislative. Uh, Debbie Riddle, Patricia Harless, they're in the legislative branch. And then there's the judicial branch. That's the judges. The Hebrew word for judge, they don't have our system divided up like that. The concept of judge is also a ruler. And the way God had originally set up Israel to run as a nation, 
if you'll go back and read the book of Judges, those are rulers. Israel doesn't have a king until they beg God for one. God didn't set it up to be a kingship where you had kings. So the, the, the root of the word within Israel is God as a judge not only sits there and makes judgment, but he's also the ruler. He has the authority as well as the decision-making discernment. The whole concept draws out of what God and the nation of Israel did at Mount Sinai. You remember your movie, The Ten Commandments? Okay? God's on Mount Sinai. Charlton Heston comes up. God writes out the tablets, the Ten Commandments, gives them to Charlton Heston. Now, if you want to go behind the movie and read the original script, it's in Exodus. And God says to the people, If you will obey my voice, if you will keep my covenant, covenant, this relationship, this deal. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured people and I'll take care of you. The people answered God. They said, right there, you got a deal. We'll do it. We will. That's a covenant relationship. God is ruler in this covenant. God's the ruler. God's the one. And the people agreed to the deal. They said, we're in. God made it clear. The deal is, you're going to keep my commandments. You're going to keep the covenant. You're going to do what I as ruler tell you to do. And if you do it, then I'm going to take care of you. And everything's going to be wonderful. The people say, okay. And so as a ruler, God gets to set out the thou shalt's and the thou shalt not's. And that's his job. So he's ruler as well as judge. He sets it up, but he also decides when it's being broken. That's who God is as a judge. But that's not all God is as a judge in the Old Testament. And so I ask you, what, what does God use for judging? How does he judge? Um, if I had a judge in here, uh, um, uh, we've got some wonderful judges in Harris County. And, and since I trashed the judiciary earlier in my speech, I need to applaud them here. We've got some wonderful judges. If I had gotten uh, uh, one of my friends, um, Judge Elizabeth Ray is a good friend of mine. She goes by the nickname Peach. And she is a peach of a person. It's a fitting name. If I had called her up and said, Judge Ray, would you come to the court? And I had interviewed her in front of you today. I would have said, Judge Ray, when you decide a case, what, what do you do? How do you decide it? Do you go by your hunch? Do you go by your feel? What do you go by? You know what her answer would be? The law. The law of Texas. It's not hunch. It's not fear. It's here's the law and I apply the law. Now, it may be a struggle to figure out how the law applies. It may be an interesting, but that's what you do. How does God make his judgments? He doesn't have the, the, the law books for the laws of Texas. Would they even apply? Or does he have to use federal law? Or maybe law of the international courts in The Hague? Or maybe there's an intergalactic law we just don't know about because we're stuck on this out-of-the-way planet. 
You know, where's God's law books? Hey, I better go check the books on this one. Or does God just decide on hunches? Is it a matter of the weather, how he feels today? Well, the answer to this biblically is God decides based on God's own character, who God is. And God is consistent and true with his character because God's setting up his kingdom and it's an expression of him. And so within that, we can read in the Old Testament and we can read how God's judgment works out. For example, God's judgment. God separate, separates out good from evil. And we see that over and over. Um, sometimes it's easier than others. But you know, Solomon, when he's praying for wisdom, prays to God that Solomon will be able to judge rightly. And by that, Solomon says specifically, I want to be able to discern between good and evil. To be the right kind of a judge, of which God is judge par excellence, to be the right kind of judge, you've got to be able to discern between good and evil. And God does that in the Old Testament over and over again. Now, here's the predicament I want you to be thinking about as I go through some of these. We all are familiar with the... We're, we're in an evangelical Protestant church. We know that God's going to judge the world one day. Okay? We know there's going to come a day of judgment when we stand before the judgment seat and God's going to separate the sheep from the goats. We all want Jesus as our atonement and, and on our side so that when God sees us, He doesn't say, get away from me, you sinner. He says, oh, you're wearing my son. Come into my presence. Okay. But is that all God's interested in as a judge? Is God's whole picture as a judge just eternity? Or are there some things in the here and now He's got some interest in? That's the question you've got to be asking as we get to Paul here in a minute. In the Old Testament, it's clear God as a judge was not just looking to eternity, but God sticking his finger in the middle of affairs of men and winnowing out the wheat from the chaff. He's separating out good from evil and responding to both appropriately. In the Old Testament, we read about God as a judge who seeks to level the playing field. Luke gathers a bunch of these statements out of Isaiah to put them together. Every valley he's going to fill. Every hill he's going to make low. The crooked becomes straight. The rough becomes level. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. The glory of the Lord in His justice. See, He, 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 he fixes it. He takes the high and brings them down. He takes the low and He lifts them up. He takes the crooked and He straightens them. It's a plumb line. It's level with Him. It's not based on who you are. He doesn't play favorites based on national origin or skin color or economic status or intellect. God's not playing favorites where, ooh, I really, really, really like the smart ones. No, that's not God. He's got that level playing field. And, and when you see him execute his judgments in the Old Testament, it's really clear. The proud people he brings down. And the humble people he lifts up. That's the way God is. 
You read your Old Testament and God as a judge champions the cause of the needy. We got to be real careful because we come from a Protestant work ethic with this God helps those who help themselves. Well, to some degree, that's true. Paul says if you're not going to work, you're not going to eat. But to some degree, that's very false because God helps the helpless. And sometimes He leaves the rest to help themselves. You don't need God, He didn't bust in His back to get over there and help you. In a very base way I'm saying that, okay? Very anthropomorphic. Isaiah, God brings justice to the fatherless. God pleads the widow's cause. God looks out and champions the cause of the needy. God has an interest in social justice. I put Lady Justice on this slide. She's holding scales. They're not tilted. They're even. And she's blindfolded. Because justice doesn't look at who is on which side of the scales to make their decision. They weigh them even with the sword of judgment raised. Some lady justices have the sword of judgment down on the law. Either way, the sword is there to execute. And, and God was clear. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. God champions the cause of the, the needies, but he's also very interested in social justice. He's interested in seeing that it's fair and even and that people are treated that way. Now, before we leave God in the Old Testament as judge, God in the Old Testament as judge also is, is faithful in the way he exercises to his covenant and to his righteousness. That's two different concepts, one slide, so let's fix it. God's faithful to the covenant. Remember the covenant we talked about on Sinai. The covenant where God said, if you will obey, and the people said, we will. God judges faithful to that covenant. He doesn't change. That covenant, it was a deal. With God, shut that, it's a bit distracting, excuse me. With God, a deal's a deal. That deal was made, and God will exercise His judgment faithful to that covenant. Not only that, God exercises His judgment based on His own character, His own righteousness. God's not changing to meet us where we are. God's 100% market-researched pure. There is no impurity in God. And if you and I expect to be in God, there can't be any impurity in us. God can't say, well, for eternity I've been pure, but now to be with Mark Lanier, I'm going to become impure and let old impure Mark Lanier in here with me. God is perfect. God does not change. God is 100% pure. And when God makes His judgments, He makes His judgments not only on the covenant He's made, but he makes his judgment on his own righteousness, his own character. What is right is what God is. What is wrong is what God is not. Right and wrong, good and evil are not arbitrary words. They're expressions of the very character and nature of our God. There really is a God. And He really has character. And He really has morality. And He really has ethics. And how our, uh, how our God is, 
the character of our God is what we call good. What does the Lord require of you? The same thing He does Himself. Micah 6.8 To do justice, to be just, to be a fair judge, to love kindness. The word kindness there is the Hebrew word chesed. It actually means a loyalty to the covenant. You love the covenant. You're kind to the covenant. It's God not only is, is wants justice, but He wants a, a, a kindness, a, a love for the covenant relationship. And He wants an humble walk. Now, God exercises this judgment like Old Faithful. Who's seen Old Faithful? Anybody in here ever seen it? I've never seen it. Isn't that horrible? Never seen it. It's on my list of to-dos. Right after the Red Raiders finish this undefeated season. <laughs> God exercises His justice like Old Faithful. I mean, it's, it's faithful. It's, it's old reliable. And it's consistent. It doesn't change. The rock, Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are mishpot from Shapat. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. That's the kind of judge he is. So, now, we've understood the Old Testament usage. God as a judge. It's not just eternal, but it is eternal. But it's based in a covenant, an agreement with the people that both sides are responsible for and God's going to judge consistent with that. And within the framework of that, as ruler and judge, He's allowed to judge the way we interact and the way we treat each other. And He's allowed to call us forth to walk in the same justice that He applies. And now we get to Paul. Paul... I don't know if you see a problem here, but if this was the end of the story, if the story ends with the Old Testament, we got a problem. Do you see the problem? Paul did. Here's the problem. If you will obey. And the people said, we will. And you know what? We don't. And that's the problem. Because God's going to judge consistent with His character and His covenant. God's not going to change. Do you know what we need? We need a new covenant. We need another deal. That deal will not work for us. We need a deal with mercy, as someone said out there. And God has another deal. The covenant is not God's only covenant. That covenant at Sinai was a covenant... But it was a covenant that met certain purposes. The one purpose it never met and never was intended to meet was our eternal security. It's not a covenant for that purpose. For that, there's another one. This is what Paul gives us. Um, I don't have... All right, I've got eight more slides and I've got 17 minutes. I'm doing math while I talk. I want to throw some scripture out at you. That probably doesn't sound very holy to say. Let me toss you my Bible. Look at Psalms. Psalms 14 here. Here's some, some, a psalm that understands the problem. 
the Lord, learned something here. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men. This is the judge, right? You see where we are? To see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. Continues. They have all, how many? All. Turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good. How many? Not even one. That's the problem. Now, Paul understood the problem. Paul understood it so well that if we look at Paul in the three chapters where he just talks over and over about God as a judge and uses this language, Romans chapter 3, look who Paul's quoting. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good. Not even one. Paul knew that psalm. He quotes it. Paul knew the problem. The problem's there. None of us are doing it. We're, we're, we, haven't, we haven't got what it takes. We made the covenant. We said we will. But we don't. And so what does God do? Well, God has a righteous judgment. Paul knows about that too. He says it in an earlier chapter. He says, look what's happening to you here. Let's see if I can get it up here. Ah, here we go. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He'll give eternal life. You live perfect? Easy street. But for those who are self-seeking, ooh, ever done anything selfish? Those who do not obey the truth, ever sinned? Who obey unrighteousness, ever done something wrong? There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. This isn't just for Jews. The Jews get it, also the Greeks. But hey, you get glory and honor and peace if you don't ever do anything wrong. Whether you're Jew or a Greek, God's not partial. So, Paul understands the problem. Because it's after this passage, Paul says, the problem is none of us have done a good deed. None of us are righteous. None of us are doing it. So Paul sees the problem. Paul knows it's there. Paul writes about it. Paul's not missing the boat. Paul's aware of what Isaiah says. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against you. The Lord looks at us and is displeased because He doesn't see us acting with justice. So the Lord says, according to their deeds, I will repay. Paul's got it. He put his finger right on the problem. Isaiah put his finger on the problem. The psalmist put his finger on the problem. It's just Isaiah was a prophet. And he saw a glimpse of the answer. Because he says, but a redeemer will come to Zion. 
to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. If you turn, if there's a change of heart, if there's repentance, Paul knew the solution. The solution was the new covenant. And Paul gives us this. Paul's the one who says, but now we have a righteousness. Heavens, let's don't leave this out. Paul says, as he charts through this, in Romans, he says, but now, ah, this is, there we go. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been shown, apart from the Old Testament covenant even though the Old Testament bears witness to it, like Isaiah did, we just looked at. This is a righteousness, a judgment of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There's no distinction here either. Everyone has sinned, everyone's fallen short of God's glory, and everyone is justified by His grace as a gift. Through... Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We'll cover that in more detail in another class. But I do want to show you this. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. God's always judged consistent with his character. The only way God could declare eternity in the, to the life of King David is by dying for King David's sins. Nobody in the Old Testament is going to get saved under the Old Covenant. They weren't any better than we are. The reason they're saved is because Christ died for them. It's a covenant based on faith, not based on works for eternity. But now if that's where we are for eternity, I've got to ask you this question that I hinted at earlier. Has God changed His focus or has Paul changed the focus of what God is as a judge? Is, is it? No. Just because God's figured out a way for us to live with Him for eternity doesn't mean He has no interest in us today and what we do. God as a judge still separates out good from evil. So should we. Paul says that God tests our hearts to see what we're doing. Do we really think we can do evil in God's sight because we're saved and get away with it? Oh, it won't affect our eternal salvation, but don't you know it affects the here and now? Since when is God not concerned with good and evil? Since when is God... Uh, I love my children unconditionally. There's not one thing... I've got Sarah in here today. Sarah asked me the other day, if I killed somebody, would you still love me? Yes. But I would really be mad. I would be very angry and I would be very upset because I expect better from her. If my children are sexually promiscuous, do I quit loving them? No. But I expect better from them than that. If they make mistakes, I love them. But I expect better from them than that. If my children tell lies, do I quit loving them? No. They're still my children. But I expect better from them than that. I'm going to teach them and I'm going to expect from them an ability to discern and separate out good from evil. Because God cares about that. God wants the playing field level. 
Oh, Paul writes, um, God considers it just to repay affliction to those who afflict you. Paul said it in Galatians. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows, that also he'll reap. God evens the playing field. I had a friend call me the other day, a newborn Christian, said, well, I'm really upset. And I said, why? He said, somebody did a wrong to me, but now I'm a Christian. I said, great. How does that change how you, you're going to react? What's, what's, what's new in your life? He said, well, I'm going to get revenge, <laughs> but I'm going to pray for their soul at the same time. <laughs> My friend was not joking. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. God is going to level the playing field. And just because we're on this side of the cross, He hadn't changed the kind of judge He is. He's got a different covenant with us. But that covenant doesn't mean, hey, now when you go do this, you're not going to have any bad consequences anymore. You can sin. All that's going to do is make my grace even bigger. No. God's still interested in bringing the proud down. Pride still comes before a fall. God's still lift, interested in lifting up the humble. Paul is the one who says to walk with all humility in Ephesians 4. In humility to count others as more significant than yourself in Philippians 2. And, and Colossians 3 to put on humility. God still cares about these things. God hasn't changed the kind of judge He is. You want to meet God on your knees? Then get on your high horse. Because He'll bring you down if He loves you. And we have the promise He does. God still champions the cause of the needy. And I've read this book from cover to cover looking desperately to see if that's only the needy in, in within three miles of my house or 50 miles or maybe the state of Texas or maybe the United States there's a reason this church is in the mission field all around this world and not all of the mission field is always out there simply proclaiming the gospel some of our mission efforts are out there feeding the hungry Educating the poor. God cares about social justice. Paul has some very harsh words for the rich people in Corinth who think because they're rich, they're something special. Paul cares about social justice. He writes the whole letter of Philemon to a slave owner about a slave and the need to set the slave free. Paul's not simply concerned about eternity. God, Paul, Paul, like Jesus, is concerned with meeting needs of people today and treating them fairly and treating them with love and treating them with compassion. We need to remember that. We need, as a church, as Christian people, we need to be known in the world we, we need a reputation for being the most loving, 
caring, take care of needy people, care for social justice, care for a level playing field, care for right and wrong. One of the principal driving, compelling biblical arguments behind protecting the unborn is how could you be more needy when you can't protect yourself? I know that's a complicated issue in some ways and in different formats and different problems and there are issues of rape and there are issues that, that I'm not getting into all of that, but I'm glad to. We'll have a class on it. This is not that moment. But what I'm telling you is, is God cares about the needy and the helpless and He calls us to step in and defend them. And by the way, once that unborn child is born, God doesn't quit caring for them. We're not supposed to trample over people post-womb as well as pre-womb. We need to care. And I want the church to be known for that. I want when I go up to New York and I meet with these people and they find out I'm a born-again believer, they don't think, oh my heavens, I've read about them in the paper. Y'all are the bigots. Maybe not racial bigots, maybe social bigots. Y'all are the ones who think you're right and everyone else is wrong. Y'all are the reason, blah, blah, blah. I want them to say, wow, you, you, you obviously have a heart for caring. Wouldn't that be a great reputation? I'm not saying we quit standing up for right and wrong, but I'm saying we don't make that the only issue we fight. We can be a multi-front people addressing the needs of the world in the name of God, appropriately in the name of God, because He cares. And ultimately, I'm absolutely convinced, the more we do, the more people will come to Jesus. Because that's the God they need to see. So let not the wise boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty boast in their strength. Let not the rich boast in his riches. But we shall boast in knowing you, the just God. Scares me to death to think of my children having money. I've warned them. I'm warning them on the internet if they listen. Sarah, you've been warned. Anything we got, we're giving away. I have zero desire to see my children have a whole bunch of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. The more you've got, the more God expects from you. And tremble if you ever think it's your money. It's not. You start treating it like it's yours, and he will rip you apart. You've got wonderful knowledge. Heaven forbid you start thinking you're smart. God's blessed you with a good mind, then God has blessed you with a good mind, and you better be using it for him. And not start thinking, well, uh, well, I understand God better than he does. See, my brain's the size of my fist, so I understand the complexities of the moral universe better than the deity who made all, everything. Don't get arrogant in who you are. Don't get arrogant in what you have. Recognize you are who you are by the grace of God. You have what you have because God's put it in your care. You're a steward over it, and let's take care of it accordingly. 
and let's bring justice to the fatherless and let's plead the widow's cause and let's look out for them. No, this is not, oh gee, the widow is hurt. Let's go see Lanier to file a lawsuit. 99% of the time you stand up for the cause, not in a court system. 99% of the time the cause is stood up for when you help them in the door. When you do the car care ministry we do for widows. That's pleading the widow's cause. When you go on the mission trips and try and help the poor. Or when you take a Compassion International child and you pay each month to make sure they get an education and they get meal and they get clothes. This is not about, oh, let's all go to court. Though heaven forbid if we do go to court, let's make sure the playing field is level. Most importantly, the righteousness of God we have is one we have through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not there in that covenant relationship with Him, I beg you. Look, it's a, it's a no-lose deal. You just get eternal good. So please come talk to some of us up here afterwards if you're not in that relationship. Because it's, it's, it's all the rage. You need to be there. This is a God worth knowing and walking with. Pray with me. Lord, we confess to you we are all sinners. We confess there's a hard edge to who we are. There's a cynicism within us. There is a, a concern that sometimes we might be, be reaching out and, and giving someone a fish rather than teaching them to fish and, and, and fostering more needs instead of meeting needs. And it, it's very complicated in our hearts and in our minds. But Lord, you made us, and we confess you not just as our God and not just as our Father, but as the judge of our hearts and the lives of this world. And Lord, we're on your team. And we ask you to sort through our minds and separate out the good from the evil. And help us understand how we should walk before you to minister to the needs of others and show your love and your compassion both to those who receive it and to those who don't just as you did on Calvary when you died for everyone, those who would receive it and those who would not. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be like you. Give us the wisdom and the strength, please, Lord. Through our Savior Jesus, we pray, amen.